0: Holy Human where we bring disability and neurodiversity to the pulpit. I'm Serena and I'm Katie and today we will be discussing two weeks worth of come follow me going from sections 88 through 92.
1: Yes, and we are members of the Dialogue Podcast Network. Dialogue Podcast Network is a collective of independent, interesting podcasts who promote thoughtful, respectful, and engaging inquiry and discussion of all aspects of the LDS tradition, thought, arts, and culture. Just recently, (laughs) I feel like every time I listen to it last she said it I just find a new episode that I'm just like now this one's my favorite it's oh my gosh they (laughs) do such good work one of their more recent episodes number 62 is entitled when is enough enough and in this episode they kind of take apart the story of the widow's might and how that story is normally told as a story to promote people giving everything they have for the church and not leaving anything for themselves and they tell it in a different way that is super empowering oh, it's it's awesome be sure to check it out for other dialogue information you can go to their website dot
0: perfect I have some thoughts about money and tithing later on in this episode but let's dive
1: in awesome yeah before we do a summary, I actually have two things that I want to say. First, okay. I want to share some information. I just learned this week, apparently, you can customize garments. Did you know that, Serena? Uh, no, no one told me that. I know. Yeah, it's super new to me. Normally, it's based on need for people with disabilities or people in the military. They can make customizable garments. The way that you access this resource is if you need help getting your measurements, you can go directly to Deseret Book to their distribution center in the back, and they can help you fill out a form and help you get your measurements. If you don't need that resource, you can call this number, and they can help you get your own customizable garments. 1-800-537-5971. When you call this number, you'll call this global services resource, and you ask to speak to a clothing consultant. They only work from 8 a.m. to 9 a.m. and 1 p.m. to 4 p.m. Mountain Standard Time, and they're Monday through Friday. When you speak to them, they will ask what kind of fabric you want and what kind of measurements you have, and then you can tell them what kind of accommodations you need. You place an order for one pair, and they send it to you, and if it works for your needs, then you can order more, or you can adjust your order to get it right for your body and your needs. And this is the sad part. Special orders are only available for people within the U.S. at this time.
0: Huh. I wonder how, like, extreme... They would let those accommodations be, you know, because like if I don't want any fabric on my legs at all, because that's a sensory issue, if they would do that for me and like make them super short, like booty shorts.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm honestly not sure.
0: If anybody wants to try it out and then let us know if it worked for you. If you're comfortable sharing, I'm really curious how your experience went if it worked and if it didn't work, what you liked, what you didn't like.
1: Yeah, I'm really curious about it too. Again, the number if you need these customizable garments is one eight hundred five three seven five nine seven one. 537 5971 And if you need help getting your measurements, you can go to a distribution center and ask them about customizable garments and they can help you start that process as well. Perfect. The other thing I wanted to note before we start is a correction that we have to make from episode 25, Creatures and Old Stories. At the end of that episode, we talked about the Indian Student Placement Program, and Mm -hmm. we got some more information about it, and I kind of misstated something, so I want to correct that. The information that I'm sharing about this is from a website called Indian Country Today, and it's a website that's created by Indigenous people for Indigenous people. It is independent, nonprofit multimedia news enterprise. This article, called How Mormons Assimilated Native Children, was posted in 2018. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints enacted the program from 1947 to about 2000. 40,000 Native youths went through it from 60 tribes. Wow. So this quote, let's see. The program forced some students to choose between birth parents and foster families and between Native tradition and the church's quote-unquote higher law. By the end of its first decade, the program was beginning to look more like an industry. Full-time missionaries and paid recruiters visited Indian reservations looking for students. In the fall, students arrived by busload at reception centers in Utah and surrounding states where they received food, medical exams, baths, shampoo, and disinfectants before going home with foster families said Jesse Embry, a research professor at the church-owned Brigham Young University, quote, "...above all, once the program was officially recognized, students were required to be at least eight years old, the age of accountability, and required to be baptized into the Mormon church. But if the ritual was the only thing that stood between a youth and opportunity, baptism was easy enough to accomplish," Embry said. There are some examples of people getting baptized just to go on placement, she said. Host families would joke that children came in with wet hair, that they were baptized just before getting on the bus. There were other stories about children not even knowing they were being baptized. The missionaries said, Come with me and I'll buy you a hamburger. And then they were baptized. Awful. Yeah. Other problems arose as the program grew. In the 1966 to 67 school year, there were 1,569 students on the program and only 19 caseworkers. That's 85 students for every professional. At its height, more than 5,000 students were on the program. Ooh. The problems were bigger than disagreements or cultural clashes in individual homes, said Elise Boxer, a professor of history and Native American studies at the University of South Dakota, an enrolled citizen of Fort Peck Assiniboine and Sioux tribes. Boxer is also an active member of the Mormon Church. She completed her dissertation on the Mormon concepts of whiteness and indigenous identity. Quote, From the Mormon perspective, the program is seen as successful as something that provided cultural, educational, and economic opportunity the students wouldn't have otherwise. But if you start looking at the language, it's problematic. Mormon homes became a tool to aid in the assimilation of Indian children. And then the article goes on to share more information about how the church and its people used racism against indigenous people Anyway, I wanted to share that and just share specifically that we didn't address the fact of how some students in this program were required to be baptized against their parents' will. They weren't aware that they were being baptized, Mm. and then they were not allowed to participate in their own traditions during the school year, and then when they returned home, they felt disconnected from their community, is what I'm understanding from these stories that are shared. Really problematic part of our history, and it just happened 50 years ago in the church. Well, it stopped happening, what, 20 years ago? Yeah. And thank you to Maggie Slight for sending us more information about that.
0: Yeah, thank you for mentioning that. Yet another thing that we have to start talking about in the church. But anyway, Should we get into Come Follow Me
1: now? (laughs) Yeah. Let me just summarize the sections really quick and we'll jump in. Section 88 is revelation given after high priests at a conference asked the Lord to reveal his will about the upbuilding of Zion. The revelation is mostly about the afterlife. 89 is the word of wisdom revelation. 90 is more revelation about establishing the first presidency and it includes temporal things like housing. 91 is revelation during the Bible translation that Joseph did about the Apocrypha. Oh. And then 92 is revelation given to Frederick G. Williams about the United Firm. Okay.
0: 88 verse 20, where it talks about celestial bodies. Bodies who are of the celestial kingdom may possess it, meaning the celestial kingdom, forever and ever. For for this intent was it made and created, and for this intent are they sanctified. Yeah, so verse 20 and then 28 through like 32 is all talking about having a celestial spirit and a celestial body, a terrestrial spirit and a terrestrial body, a celestial spirit and a celestial body. And it's just oh, I feel a way about some of these things. And I, it kind of bothers me. Like verse 28, it says, they who are of a a celestial spirit shall receive the same body, which was a natural body. Even ye shall receive your bodies and your glory shall be that glory by which your bodies are quickened. I'm really uncomfortable with this idea of ranking our bodies, A, and then correlating that ranking of our bodies with which heaven we're going to after we died. Mm. And I actually remember an institute lesson where that institute teacher was talking about how this literally means that you'll be able to tell which kingdom you're going to right after resurrection because it'll be separated by what kind of body you have. <laughs>
1: Wow. Yeah.
0: He was talking about like the literal light that we will like emit, like we're going to be bioluminescent or something. And depending on how much light we emit, we'll be able to tell which kingdom we're going to, which is some uh, wow. some interesting <laughs> doctrine there. Anyway, yeah, I'm just uncomfortable with anything that, Puts One particular type of body over another and says that it's more holy. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I'm really interested in the fact that you brought it up and pointed it to bodies so much. And this is something that I just maybe two weeks ago was talking to a leader in my ward about. Oh, I had some questions about section 76. It was actually after listening to the Faithful Feminist, they took apart Section 76. And one thing that really bothered them was the concept of how exclusive heaven is taught in Mm -hmm. our church. Yeah. And I shared my thoughts with this leader after reading the sections that Faithful Feminists were referring to. And I was like, whoa, 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 whoa. Like, what is this? And this leader, Pointed to the concept of like, the way it's interpreted is that there are three kingdoms and it's like places, there's borders around these places and you're either in or you're out and there's no in between. And this leader talked about how. He's read the scriptures so many times and just never liked that, never liked that it's so exclusive and you're either A, B or C and that's ranked. And he said in reading these sections, he noticed the word body over and over again. And for him, he interpreted it as how the celestial glory is in us. It's in our bodies and how, depending on how we feel that day, how we want to act, our choices Even in heaven, how we can be glorified telestially one day and how we can be glorified celestially one day and how that can change because when we progress in the afterlife, it's not a linear like up direction. We are learning and growing and that's going to take some ups and downs, right? Right. It's interesting to hear your thoughts on it too, on how still like ranking bodies can be a harmful thing. But I think if you bring in the concept of like how we ourselves are constantly changing and coming to a greater understanding of ourselves and our place in God's plan, like how that can be a little more affirming of diversity if you put it on the body rather than a place that our bodies will dwell.
0: I like certain things about this man's theory. I like the fact that he looks at growth not in a linear fashion, which is also something that we talked about last episode. But yeah, you're yeah, right. Yeah. I still don't like the association between a body and one being better than the other, you know? Even if it's day-to-day, I feel like I mean, we all <laughs> for a lot of us our, our bodies already change day-to-day because our disability that that fluctuates from day-to-day and that's really common.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think it's kind of cool to think about how even now at times we're more authentic to ourselves than other times. Like sometimes we're pressured to act a certain way or present a certain way, be a certain kind of person to be able to fit into this church or in society in general. And maybe you could go as far as to read it that way. Like, the more that you're authentically yourself in life, that's a more celestial representation of you at that time. Yeah. And you go in and out of that depending on whatever circumstance you're in, if whether it's pressure or abuse or just the way that you're taught. And I don't think that that's linear either. I think that there's times where I'm more empowered to be myself and then I regress for whatever reason. So maybe it's connected to that, that we're finding our true identities, our place in the afterlife, which will be incredibly diverse from other people. Yeah. (laughs) At last she said it, they've talked about how they are like introverts and they are not interested in leadership and presenting heaven like priests and priestesses, you know, you're in charge of things and you will (laughs) be creators. And they're like, that's not heaven for me. I don't like being a leader. Like we all will have different places in heaven that makes sense for us that we belong in based on our identities and what we like. I think that there is a way to read this concept in a really affirming way, but you kind of have to like, suppose a lot of your own beliefs on it, which obviously can lead Mm. people in a lot of different directions. So yeah, I definitely have my own beliefs on these things that I don't think will be taught from the pulpit, maybe ever but I can still feel the spirit when I'm identifying these beliefs that I have. And I'm not saying I know the truth. I'm not saying I know everything Mm -hmm. and I have the right answer. But I think if you read these sections and come to your own conclusions and feel the spirit when you come to those conclusions, I don't think there's anything wrong with that personally.
0: Yeah, I love all of what you just said. And speaking of something affirming, I just wanted to go back and talk about verse 15 really quickly because I think it ties in really well in section 88, which says, the spirit and the body are the soul of humans. I'll say humans. But yeah, our, our spirit and our bodies are our souls. To say that you think that my body should be a certain way in the afterlife, if it's not true to me, then that's literally like you're trying to edit my soul. Mm -hmm. No, that's my soul that I'm in charge of, that I get to enjoy, that is intrinsic to my identity, like you were talking about identity, you know? So, like, even if it changes and evolves, whether that be my spirit or my body, both of those are intertwined and I have a right to determine what that looks like
1: for me. Yeah, when we discover what our soul actually is, that's us discovering our identity. Like how does my spirit align with my body and that's my soul? Like that is a divine thing when you discover that. And I think that that's a journey for a lot of people. And yeah, when people throw hurdles in your path to discover that, if they don't believe that your body should be a certain way, you're putting hurdles in my path to discovering what my soul is. Let's like eternal oppression <laughs> that we're talking about when you're questioning mm. people's identities. Yeah.
0: This was really interesting. I didn't expect this to take um this turn. Do you want to move on to verse 40? Yeah. I'll just read it really quickly. For intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, wisdom receiveth wisdom, truth embraceth truth, virtue loveth virtue, light cleaveth unto light, mercy hath compassion on mercy and claimeth her own, justice continueth its course and claimeth its own, judgment goeth before the face of him who sitteth upon the throne and governeth and executeth all things. This verse... It gives me sapiosexual vibes. Do you know what sapiosexual is? I do not. Okay, I think we need to, I'm gonna introduce this concept. It is relevant, I promise. So we talk about different orientations, right? And there's a big talk about different kinds of orientations in the LGBTQ community, right? So you have heterosexual, bisexual, gay, lesbian, asexual, demisexual, and pansexual. And then some people have presented the concept of sapiosexual as an orientation. Now, people who are claiming this are saying that they're only attracted sexually to people who are very intelligent. Hmm. And so this this idea in verse 40, where intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence, that's what it reminds me of. And in a lot of LGBTQ circles, like on Tumblr especially, sapiosexual has been outed as like not an actual sexual orientation. It's been used a lot by like straight white males as a way of like justifying their pretentiousness, if that makes sense. Hmm. So this is an article in Bustle. According to Pink News, a live journal user called WolfieBoy claimed to have created the term sapiosexual in 1998. In a post written in 2002 about the term, he quoted another sapiosexual to help explain the meaning of the term. Quote, me? I don't care too much about the plumbing, meaning the parts of a person. I want an incisive, inquisitive, insightful, irreverent mind." So the original meaning appears to have had a lot more to do with dating on the basis of intelligence, regardless of gender. However, this soon changed to something more limited. As Bustle previously reported, identifying as a sapiosexual has been criticized because it can be deemed as classist and ableist, therefore discriminatory. For example, the top hit when you Google sapiosexual test includes the statements, I judge my level of attraction to a person based on how witty, inquisitive, or mentally sharp they are. And, quote, foolish people cause me to feel very irritated and disheartened.
1: Jeez. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Others have explained that sapiosexuality is not a sexual orientation, but rather a kink or a dating preference that shouldn't be confused with queerness. Hmm. A Daily Beast article about sapiosexuals from 2015, writer Samantha Allen notes, quote, "...in every scientific and sociological sense of the term, sapiosexuality is not a sexual orientation. A person who likes writers is not a scribosexual. A person who likes lawyers is not a jurosexual." While there's Mm. nothing wrong in finding intelligence attractive, per se, it's important to be mindful of exactly what informs society's perceptions of intelligence. The term as it stands is pretty exclusionary, and to conflate what's really a preference for a personality trait with a sexual orientation is something to consider closely. Mm. So this is a problem because, A, it's not an orientation. It's already kind of something that is evident in our society. People who present themselves as more conventionally intelligent are already seen as more conventionally attractive. So it's Mm -hmm. kind of redundant, A. And B, it's exclusionary to people who have different kinds of intelligence. And C, it's also can be really undermining towards people who are actually queer for these straight people to start claiming, oh, I'm sapiosexual. Like, no, you're just you're just a prick. Does that make sense? (laughs) Like, (laughs) you're just a prick who refuses to date somebody who doesn't live up to your, whatever. Anyway, I won't go into that. But yeah, that's the vibe that this verse gives me because it's like, intelligence cleaveth unto intelligence. Like, I only want smart people. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like, Hmm. that's what I get. Now, there's another article on neuroclassic.com, which is, affirming neurodivergent website all about sapiosexuality and it's not like an article it's someone's personal opinion they are talking about their journey as they discovered that they were autistic found the term sapiosexual identified with it and then someone else pointed out ableism and then they're like oh wow look at all these new words This person is saying that they, for a little bit, thought that they were sapiosexual, but then after analyzing it a little bit more, realized that they don't identify with it in the way that these other people are using it. So in this section, in their article about saying, is sapiosexuality ableist or elitist? They say... That depends. I theorize that my sexuality is directly an extension of the way that I exist as an autistic person who has been called stupid, moron, idiot, and even the R word slur about as many times as I've been called gifted. Intelligence is in the eye and biases of the beholder. It is a subjective construct. Intelligence Mm. exists and it's not measurable by IQ. Anyone can have different types of intelligence. The people I'm attracted to are often accused of having no emotional intelligence. They're not athletes and usually have a list of learning disabilities or mental health diagnoses. Honestly, I fancy a bit of crazy. What intelligence means to me is very different from what intelligence means to most people. I like big words and I cannot lie. (laughs) I like curiosity, (laughs) daring thinkers, cognitive rule breakers.
1: I'm not over that part. That's really funny. (laughs)
0: Which, I mean, I can oh analyze gosh. that, but, but I'll keep going. Um, I like curiosity, <laughs> daring thinkers, cognitive rule breakers, people who are specialized in some or many fields who have gifts to give to the thankless world. I hate ego, but love a bit of earned arrogance. I think that this is called intelligence until someone is diagnosed as autistic, and then it's just being pedantic, arrogant, rigid, socially inappropriate, and whatever else gets associated with autism. Mm. So this person makes a case that they identify with sapiosexuality in the extent that it explains the way their autism interacts with their attraction, I guess. However, I don't think that neurotypicals who are using this term are meaning it that way. They're using it in an ableist way, saying Mm -hmm. that people who don't live up to certain arbitrary measures of intelligence, which many autistics will not, if you're going by neurotypical standards, are not attractive. So I guess my point is, and I'm closing up on this little tangent now, I agree that like things cleave unto like things. Like this verse 40 says, intelligence cleave unto intelligence. However, I disagree with stating intelligence as an objective thing. And I would even say that neurotype cleaves unto neurotype to some extent. Mm. Like Mm. I, as an autistic person, am really attracted to people who are very similarly autistic and also more than that, who are comorbid (laughs) in cluster B diagnoses like me. (laughs) And so I guess I consider this verse true to that extent. However, because intelligence means different things to different people, like, the, quote, smart people that I'm attracted to are all mostly autistic and have been called dumb or stupid or lacking social intelligence in some ways, that doesn't mean that that's the way it should be or has to be. Like, it doesn't mean we should extend this kind of, like, like cleaving unto, like, beyond, like, personal partner choices to, like, an entire, like, freaking system of heaven. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, that's interesting. And I would add neurotype cleaveth unto neurotype. I think that makes sense on the marginalized side. Like if you're taught Mm -hmm. that you are wrong and you meet other people that are taught that they are wrong, you're going to understand each other very well. I would say... For neurotypicals, who we're the ones that are taught like we're the right way, we're normal, quote unquote normal, Uh like don't say, oh, I'm neurotypical, so I cleave unto neurotypicals like I I naturally connect with neurotypicals better and I should just have friends that are neurotypical. Like, no, you need diversity in your life. You need people that think differently than you because they will contribute to their life, not as like oh, you should accept them because that's giving grace to them. Like, no, they're going to be impactful in your life in a lot of different ways. Mm -hmm.
0: Yeah, I think that was a great addition. And what did you want to say
1: about 41? Yeah, 41. Um, (laughs) I really loved 41. Let me read it really quick. I'm going to change it to just say God instead of he. God comprehendeth all things and all things are before them and all things are around them and they are above all things and in all things and is through all things and is round all things and all things are by them and of them, even God forever and ever. And this, oh my gosh, I loved this verse because it made me think about like, of all of God's creations and all the power that God has with their creations, how God is still aware of each of us individually. Like that's what this verse is saying to me. Our heavenly parents are aware of us and care about each of us individually. And Don't let your brain tell you lies that say that you don't matter or that your life has no meaning because that's impossible. You are loved and you matter to our creator. Our divine parents know your soul and your heart, even as you're learning and growing. Despite Mm -hmm. the vastness of all creation, you matter to them. And if you don't know about that, pray about it. Seek to find evidence of your heavenly parents' love for you as you are, and you'll find it if you seek that. Yeah. Okay, so verses 51 through 61, there's a parable that's shared. In these verses, the Lord's telling of people that are laboring in a field and they're being visited in turn by the master of the field. So in 51, it starts, Behold, I will liken these kingdoms unto a man having a field, and he sent forth his servants into the field to dig in the field. And he said unto the first, Go ye and labor in the field, and in the first hour I will come unto you, and ye shall behold the joy of my countenance. And he said unto the second, Go ye also into the field, and in the second hour I will visit you with the joy of my countenance." And also unto the third, saying, I will visit you, and unto the fourth, and so on, unto the twelfth. And the Lord of the field went unto the first in the first hour, and tarried with him all that hour. And he was made glad with the countenance of his Lord. And then he withdrew from the first, that he might visit the second also, and the third, and the fourth, and so on, unto the twelfth. And thus they all received the light of the countenance of their Lord, every man in his hour, in his time, in his season, every man in his own order until his hour was finished, even according to, as his Lord had commanded him, that his Lord might be glorified in him and he in his Lord, that they all might be glorified. Ah. Uh. I loved this parable. Well, I think you could read good and bad things from this parable. I read it as, especially verse 58 and 60, the Lord will visit us in our time and in our season, not necessarily the Lord's time in the Lord's mm. season. God doesn't have to force themselves into our lives. God comes when we're ready or when we consent to receive them. And then in mm. verse 60 that they both may be edified, meaning the Lord and us individually. Like that's the purpose of this visit. There's a benefit on both ends of Mm -hmm. like receiving each other. I thought that that was so cool.
0: Yeah, that is really cool. I like that.
1: Yeah, and it kind of supports what we shared before about our thoughts on celestial bodies compared to celestial kingdoms, how we're received according to our time and our hour Instead of necessarily the Lord's, I don't know. I just feel like it's really affirming of diversity and identity. Yeah, it is. Anything else from 88 that you want to look at? I feel like, honestly, I could
0: talk about 88 this whole time. (laughs) Yeah. Verses
1: 63 through 65.
0: Draw near unto me and I will draw near unto you. Seek me diligently and you shall find me. Ask and ye shall receive. Knock and it shall be opened unto you. Whatsoever you shall ask the Father in my name, it shall be given unto you that is expedient for you. And if you ask anything that is not expedient for you, it shall turn unto your condemnation. I don't know about you, but I feel like this is one of those verses that I like kind of clung to when I was like really grappling with my disability at the beginning. Does that mm. make sense? Um, mm. When I was like yearning for healing, when I didn't want to have... This disability weighing me down, what quote, weighing me down, right? Like when I considered it as something that was ruining my life because I had a lot of internalized ableism. And I feel like these verses can cause a lot of confusion for disabled people who are at that point in their lives because it says, ask and you shall receive, right? Like, okay, I asked, I asked to be healed and you didn't heal me. Does that mean Mm. that what I asked for was not expedient? And then it goes on to say that if I ask for something that's not expedient, then it's going to be to my condemnation. So now am I going to be judged because I asked to be healed?
1: Mm. Wow. Wow. Kind
0: of this like cycle that just goes deeper and deeper into like self-loathing. At least that's the way I remember reading these verses before.
1: Yeah. Dang. This one's a challenge. I feel like you could connect it to the concept of like the will of God and you'll, if you align yourself Mm -hmm. with God, then you'll only ask what the will of God is. But people aren't all knowing, like even if you Mm -hmm. are doing your best to be humble and to follow the commandments and have faith in God and his timing, like you still don't know everything, especially if it's still like, righteous intentions asking for goodness to come into your life like dang (laughs) how are we supposed to know
0: yeah and is the condemnation just the natural consequence because you chose something that was harmful for Mm. you i feel like the word condemnation implies that it's going to be like a punishment right or some sort of judgment from god sent from
1: god yeah exactly (sighs) Dot, dot, dot. We don't have an answer to this one. Maybe if people have some insight and could send it to us, I'd love to hear people's thoughts on these verses, considering verse 65.
0: I guess to our able-bodied and neurotypical audience, please be mindful of the way you use these because the concept of like healing is a really thorny topic when it comes to disability and neurodivergence, and especially blessings as well. And both of these combined are in the here. So anyway. Verse 99, mm, there's just so much in here and my brain is just <laughs> warning, warning, warning. <laughs> verse 99 is talking about the second coming and it's talking about all these angels, resurrection and people are like coming out of their graves and it's a good thing, not like a horror movie thing. And then in verse 99, it says, and after this, another angel shall sound, which is the second trump. And then cometh the redemption of those who are Christ's at his coming, who have received their part in that prison, which is prepared for them, that they might receive the gospel and be judged according to men in the flesh. And I don't know if it's like, just because we were talking about incarceration last week, um, or I guess two weeks ago at this point when we release it, but like Uh, the concept of spirit prison and just, like, literally people who die who have not been converted are going to be in a spirit prison until they convert. Like, to me now, I'm just like, that's awful. That's terrible. Like, how is that giving people agency by saying, if you don't convert, well, this is what happens after you die, you're going to be imprisoned. And I know there are people who do say that it's metaphorical prison, but, like, I just, it's, mm, that's not that's a scare tactic. Does that make sense? That's not mm-hmm. agency. That's that's saying I'm going to do something terrible to you unless you do this or unless you convert. In what way can that be considered an unbiased choice on that person's part? You know what I mean? Right. Yeah. If you're just converting because you're scared of hell or cuz you're scared of spirit prison, then how is that true conversion? And it's not your fault for being scared by those things because that's the way the scriptures and, like, the prophets and apostles and whomever, that's the way they present it. I really wish we did not have this as part of our doctrine because it, to me, does not seem consistent with the principle of agency. But honestly, I don't feel like a lot of people who talk about agency really know what it is because they talk about agency without talking about, like, informed consent. You know what I mean? Like... Yeah. So this bothers me, especially since, like we said before, unbelief or losing one's testimony or having a faith crisis can be an indication of or even an example of neurodivergence. Right. So putting people in spirit prison for not believing, I feel like is a sort of just way of containing all the neurodivergent people. Does that make sense? Mm, Wow. And that to me feels eerily and kind of disgustingly similar to how high our prison populations are and how overpopulated they are with black and brown and neurodivergent and mentally ill people in the United States of America. Does that make sense? Wow. Yeah. So I am spirit prison. I don't like it.
1: Gosh, really interesting thoughts on agency and how you have to consider informed consent when you talk about agency. I heard this talk that's being quoted by a lot of people in a uh, it's so david mm-hmm. a bednar you can find it on youtube it's where he talks about agency and he's talking about how people say agency the ability to choose period, period. but he's mm-hmm. like that's not agency agency is the ability to choose right like we were given agency <sighs> to lead us to right and my thoughts i'm like Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> i know i i it, it that was hard to listen to and not think of Satan's plan. You know what I mean? Yes. How, how could it be like, I'm going to give you the ability to choose, but only if you choose right. That, doesn't, that yep. doesn't make sense to me. That's not free will. And I think your comment about informed consent really sheds a lot of light on that
0: yeah informed consent is only one part of it and it's a big part of it but the other part of it is we never talk about things that infringe upon agency because i don't know maybe we don't bring in enough of the social sciences in my opinion into our discussions of theology like we don't talk about how abuse or disability or neurodivergence or like i said scare tactics can alter someone's brain and therefore alter their ability to choose or limit their choices, how socioeconomics and race can limit your choices. You know what I mean? Like, mm, mm-hmm. it's, this
1: is a whole thing. I mean, yeah, we talked about it in the Indian Student Placement Program, how you're given all of these benefits, like you're given food and education and place to stay and kind of like a grant to send your kid to this program. Of course, there's going to be a huge number of people applying for this program without actually knowing, OK, it's like a conversion tactic for the church, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. like, is that really a choice? Is that actual agency?
0: And, well, who took away the food and the shelter and the resources from the indigenous peoples of America in the first place? It was the to colonizers. put them in that
1: place. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, like, you're going to take it away, take away someone's resources so that they can live, and then say i'll only give it back to you if you convert and become exactly like me but not as good as me
1: yeah you know like mm, nope anyway one more thing before we move on i think that our generation and the generation under us gen z i think we as a whole are really stepping away from a fear-based god and trying to point out the facts of like Okay, we say that everyone belongs in our church. We say that God is a loving God and that he has unconditional love. But when we put that into practice, that's seen as radical. And Mm. the concepts of like a fear-based God or a fear-based religion are still really strong in our church. And I'm hoping it's an actual shift and not just like a small group of, yeah, a trend. Because I feel like we'll be able to better embrace what we actually teach once we make that shift. That's why we still see it reflected in our scriptures, especially like Joseph was influenced by a fear-based God based on his time. Like that's what religion Mm -hmm. was at that time. And we're going to see it in our scriptures today. And that's why we still teach it today in our church because we're reflecting on scriptures that were written at that time.
0: Mm -hmm. It makes me think of section 90. There's a lot of things about idleness in here. Mm -hmm. And it just made me think of the Protestant work ethic and how much like is it really influencing our scriptures and our church nowadays, right? So first of all, let me say that I don't like the admonition to, to not be idle because I think it's ableist, okay? Now, this is why working is not inherently a good thing. And this might blow some people's minds, but being super busy all the time, making money and like hustling is not an objectively good thing. So Protestant work ethic. (laughs) Let me see. Where are my taps? There's this book called The Protestant Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism by Max Weber. He was a German sociologist, economist, and politician. Begun as a series of essays, the original German text was composed in 1904, 1905. It is considered a founding text in economic sociology and a milestone contribution to sociological thought in general. Weber, I mean, it's German. I'm trying to do a German accent. Anyway, so he's arguing that religious devotion in kind of like a Protestant sense, it goes hand in hand with how they're treating money. To illustrate his theory, Weber quotes the ethical writings of Benjamin Franklin. And this is what Benjamin Franklin said. Remember that time is money. He that can earn ten shillings a day by his labor and goes abroad or sits idle one half of that day, though he spends but six pence during his diversion or idleness, ought not to reckon that the only expense he has really spent or rather thrown away five shillings besides. Remember that money can beget money, and its offspring can beget more, and so on. The more there is of it, the more it produces every turning, so that the profits rise quicker and quicker. He that kills a breeding sow destroys all her offspring to the thousandth generation. He that murders a crown destroys all that it might have produced, even scores of its pounds. So Veba, and I'm reading from the Wikipedia article about... Weber's book notes that this is not a philosophy of mere greed, but a statement laden with moral language. Indeed, Franklin claimed that God revealed the usefulness of this virtue to him. To emphasize the work ethic and Protestantism relative to Catholics, Weber notes a common problem that industrialists face when employing pre-capitalist labors. Agricultural entrepreneurs will try to encourage time spent harvesting by offering a higher wage with the expectation that laborers will see time spent working as more valuable and so engage it longer. However, in pre-capitalist societies, this often results in laborers spending less time harvesting. Laborers judge that they can earn the same while spending less time working and having more leisure. He also notes that societies having more Protestants are those that have a more developed capitalist economy. It is particularly advantageous in technical occupations for workers to be extremely devoted to their craft. To view the craft as an end in itself or as a, oh, here's a fun word, quote, calling would serve this need well. (laughs) This attitude is well noted in certain classes which have endured religious education it's not limited to Western culture. Wait, I'm, I'm picking out stuff. So Weber traces the origins of the Protestant ethic to the Reformation, which was started by a major movement within Western Christianity in the 16th century that posed like a challenge to the Catholic Church, right? So you think of like Martin Luther, right? So before the Reformation, the Roman Catholic Church assured salvation to individuals who accepted the church's sacraments and submitted to clerical authority, right? So literally, like they would have to pay money, and they would get a thing back that says, "Yeah, you're saved," or "Your sin," or that particular sin is forgiven. Does that make sense?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Back mm-hmm. then, uh, I know that I'm speaking very generally, and I'm probably making some mistakes in my accuracy because I'm trying to remember my one institute class of Christian history. Anyway, basically, Weber is saying before the Reformation, that's how people were assured of salvation. They had this like physical thing that they could hold on to, which again, they had to pay money for, which showed them that they were saved. But after the Reformation, the people who were Protestant rebelled against that. They didn't want to have their salvation tied to paying the money. But from a psychological viewpoint, and I'm quoting the Wikipedia article, the average person had difficulty adjusting to this new worldview, and only the most devout believers or, quote, religious geniuses within Protestantism, such as Martin Luther, were able to make this adjustment. In the absence of such assurances from a religious authority, so like those physical tokens, Weber argued that Protestants began to look for other, quote, signs that they were saved. Calvin and his followers taught a doctrine of double predestination, in which from the beginning God chose some people for salvation and others for damnation. The inability to influence one's own salvation presented a very difficult problem for Calvin's followers in the thought of Weber, who considered Calvinists to believe it an absolute duty to believe that one was chosen for salvation and to dispel any doubt about that. So therefore... The lack of self-confidence was evidence of insufficient faith and a sign of damnation. So all this to say self-confidence took the place of like priestly assurance of God's grace and worldly success became a measure of that self-confidence. Do you see where this is going? Mm-hmm. See how this is like wow. one thing leading to another? Okay. And then it it kept evolving and so much that a vocation from God was no longer limited to like a priest or clergy or church, but could apply to any occupation or trade. So In simple terms, what Weber argued is, according to the new Protestant religions, an individual was religiously compelled to follow a secular vocation with as much zeal as possible. And we see this in Doctrine and Covenants where it talks about we should be anxiously engaged in a good Mm -hmm. cause, right? Mm -hmm. A person living according to this worldview was more likely to accumulate money. And then here's the kicker. (laughs) The new religions, in particular Calvinism and other more austere Protestant sects, effectively forbade wastefully using hard-earned money and identified the purchase of luxuries as a sin, which, again, we also see in our scriptures. Donations to an individual's church or congregation were limited due to the rejection by certain Protestant sects of icons. Finally, donation of money to the poor or charity was generally frowned on as it was seen as furthering beggary. This social condition was perceived as laziness, burdening their fellow man and affront to God by not working. One failed to glorify God. The manner in which this dilemma was resolved, Weber argued, was the investment of this money, which gave an extreme boost to nascent capitalism. So much clicked in my mind when I read this. This explains so many things, okay? First of all, we see the origins of why like working hard is seen to be good because that's like the self-assurance that we're getting salvation. And we see that because of these tokens, right? Like we exchange the tokens from the Reformation to self-confidence, right? And then, and then we see the whole like calling thing, right? Um, And my mind is like moving faster than my mouth. So I apologize if this doesn't make sense. We see the whole calling thing where people delved really deeply into these work vocations, even if they were something as simple as like blacksmithing or like being a shop owner or something because that showed their work ethic and therefore assured them of their own salvation. Right. And we see that in our callings, too. And then finally, 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 we see how the accumulation of money is correlated to salvation here, but you don't spend it. Instead, you invest it. And what does the church do with tithing money? It collects it and invests it. That's what the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints does. That's why we have $100 billion in an investment fund in Salt Lake City. That's wild. And now I'm going to get into some things that some people are going to say is anti-Mormon, but it's not anti-Mormon to point out the truth. We ought to know about our own church. So a couple years ago... There was a whistleblower complaint filed with the IRS that alleged that the LDS Church funneled member tithes into EPA, a nonprofit supporting organization controlled by the church, and amassed more than $100 billion in owned assets under management over 23 years. The complaint alleges that EPA, the Ensign Peak Advisors, did not make charitable distributions, but it did send $2 billion to help to for profit companies. Now, this article is from religionunplugged.com. So, this Wait, is sorry
1: to break apart what you just said. The church is giving tithing money to a nonprofit who's not giving that money to the poor, but that nonprofit is giving money to for profit businesses. Is that right?
0: Exactly. And
1: the church owns this nonprofit.
0: It's, it's, it's managed by the, it's, an, it's a management company. Does that make sense? Okay. It's a it's a, an investment management company. And then this article is saying that the church declined to respond for a super long time after this whistleblower complaint, and then they finally released a statement that says that the vast majority of these funds are used immediately to meet the needs of the growing church, including more meeting houses, temples, education, humanitarian work, and missionary efforts throughout the world. Over many years, a portion is methodically safeguarded through wise financial management and the building of a prudent reserve in the future. However, this is not true. It's the opposite. The most of it is going towards this investment fund, and the Wall Street Journal found that employees of this firm, of this EPA, signed lifetime confidentiality agreements, and most employees were no longer told the assets under management figures for the firm. So, like, the employees are not even told how much money they're managing. Wow. So it's very sketchy. The head of EPA, Roger Clark, indicated to the Wall Street Journal that EPA is a quote, rainy day account to be used in difficult economic times. Some church leaders suggested the fund could be used in the event of an economic or financial crisis. Gee, what happened in 2020? Did we see an economic crisis? Yeah, we did. Me, personally, I'm a member of the church still, as miraculously so. I was in dire economic need, and I didn't see the church giving out sweeping money or passing rules to help lift people out of homelessness or near homelessness. And listen to this. <laughs> The journal reported that LDS officials worried that members might not want to tithe as much if they knew about the massive investment portfolio at EPA, which is true. I don't pay tithing and I consider it a moral thing. I think it's immoral for me to pay tithing at this point. Quote, this tithing almost starts to sound like common law fraud, said Jeanne Markey, an attorney at Cohen Milstein in Philadelphia who specializes in whistleblower complaints. Quote, these LDS members are giving their hard-earned dollars to this organization, and all of a sudden it's being invested in Apple and Microsoft? Why aren't these people being told what is really happening? Clark also acknowledged to the journal that the firm used a system of more than a dozen shell companies to make its market holdings harder to trace, which Clark said would prevent LDS members from trying to mimic the stock position of the EPA. Along with quarterly SEC filings, EPA appears to be more recognizable as an institutional investor in public companies now. Some companies like to show when large and established institutional investors take positions in their company, considering that a vote of confidence in the company. And those companies might consider it an honor when a morally and financially scrutinizing investor such as EPA, buys shares. Penske Automotive Group, for example, released its quarterly earnings on November twenty first, 2020, and noted in its press release that among institutional and hedge fund investors, Ensign Peak Advisors increased its stake in Penske by 2,651 percent and now owns 181,578 shares of Penske's stock valued at $7 million similarly capital 1 financial company said on december 9th 2020 that epa had boosted its stake by 144% during the second quarter bringing its holdings of capital 1 to 892,979 shares valued at 55.9 million okay and that's not even like 1 billion so this is this is just a drop in the bucket so the point is our tiding money is going to support these huge companies in the U.S. And that's exactly consistent with what Max Weber was saying about the Protestant work ethic and it going towards investment and supporting capitalism. And it also goes to show like why idleness is so discouraged because that is not lucrative for capitalism. And the fact that these companies are like, proud of the fact that EPA, which is the church's investment firm, is investing in them and that we have so many shares in these companies. We talk about missionary work as spreading the gospel, but it almost feels like they're using capitalism to spread the gospel. That like not only are we using tithing to like build churches, but we're using it to buy shares so that we can have more influence in these companies that are running the world and ruining the environment. So it's like almost taking over the world, but through capitalism now and using tithing money from millions of poor people who are members of the church to do it. Anyway. <sighs> so that's that's my thing on in section ninety. Oh wow. And then okay. section eighty eight verses one twenty four cease to be idle cease to be unclean cease to find fault Mm. with one another cease to sleep longer than is needful retire to thy bed early so that you can make money for the capitalist overlords that you be not weary arise early (laughs) that your bodies and your minds may be invigorated so you can make more money for the capitalist overlords yeah anyway
1: (laughs) oh i shouldn't be laughing (laughs)
0: It makes sense why church members are so conservative, why they accuse people who are leftist and who are like giving to the marginalized as being communist or socialist. Right. It makes sense why we've had so many talks in the 20th century against communism and socialism and like the dangers of it, because that would interfere with the church's investment fund. Yeah. Anyway, so that's my conspiracy theory. That's not really a conspiracy theory because... Uh, it's fact. And I know a lot of people in the church who love the Wall Street Journal and they're the ones who did this report. So, (laughs) well, one of the ones who did this, did this investigation. These are like, like accredited news organizations that cite multiple sources that do investigations. Mm
1: -hmm. (sighs) I was just going to say, I'm I'm like sitting with that for a moment. Like that was a lot of information. That's really important to know. Like you said, like just because it's hard information to receive doesn't mean it's anti.
0: Yeah, it's one thing to say these are hard things to sit with and I need to do my research and come to terms with it and then make a decision myself, which I think is an appropriate reaction. And that's something that I've done. It seems like something you're doing right. Um, and mm-hmm. another thing just to be like, oh, well, that's anti-Mormon stuff. By you saying it's anti-Mormon stuff, you're literally admitting that it's bad, right? You know what I mean?
1: Like, Yeah.
0: So like if you're admitting that it's bad, but then it turns out to be true, what does that say about like your internal dissonance and your internal morality?
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, I'm going to go backwards a little bit from where you were. I only have one more thing in section 88. Verse okay. 122. Amazing verse appoint among yourselves a teacher, and let not all be spokesmen at once, but let one speak at a time, and let all listen unto their sayings, that when all have spoken, that all may be edified of all, and that every person may have an equal privilege. Wowie.
0: <laughs> yeah, I really like, you liked it? Because I oh, like yeah. that. yeah. Okay,
1: good. Yeah, I love that. I think that, when you're in a group setting, it's helpful to have a teacher. It's helpful to have a leader just so there can be some kind of like organization so we can have someone come prepared so we can learn. But when other people speak, like it's not just about the teacher. It's all of us have to be edified and can grow from each Mm -hmm. other. And then to end it, that every person may have an equal privilege. Like, man, with everything that we've been sharing on this podcast and everything I've been learning about privilege like it's an interesting phrase equal privilege first of all like I would say at this time it's an ideal it's not a reality definitely overall but even in this setting that it's talking about like how we're learning in the church equal privilege here it's kind of used to say the privilege of learning of growing of edifying one another of having space to speak the concepts of sharing responsibility of learning and teaching and leadership and that leading to edifying all that all may edify all and then that leading to equal privilege i just think that that's really cool that that's in the scriptures it's a divine and logical concept that all these things would lead to the next thing
0: yeah it's very equalizing right that we want to be equitable so that people who are underprivileged can operate and engage in the
1: church to the same extent yeah underprivileged in a lot of different ways yeah Mm -hmm. okay do we dare jump into 89 (laughs) oh word of wisdom (laughs) word of wisdom so when come follow me talks about Word of wisdom. It refers to the saints' book as a reference, 1 166 through 68. I just want to read this quote. I thought it was really interesting. The revelation had been declared not as a commandment, but as a caution. Many people would find it hard to give up using these powerful substances, and Joseph did not insist on strict conformity. He continued to drink alcohol occasionally, and he and Emma sometimes drank coffee and tea. When I read that, I I don't know if I had realized that before, that it wasn't a commandment right when it was given. And I looked into it a little bit, and on churchnews.com, they have an article from 1997. It's called Word of Wisdom is a Commandment. It says... (sighs) In 1851, President Brigham Young proposed to the General Conference of the Church that all saints formally covenant to keep the word of wisdom. This proposal was unanimously upheld by the membership of the Church. So it wasn't until 1851 that it became a commandment that Brigham Young was the one to ask in a general conference, the Church, should this be a commandment? And everyone voted that it would be a commandment and I'm like wow that's not normally how we receive commandments like let's vote on it again I wonder I wonder if we voted again I I don't think it would be unanimous for sure <laughs> and I mm-hmm. also please excuse this cynical commentary but I was like how different would oh, the church it. be if Brigham Young wasn't a prophet <laughs> Like, this is just so interesting to me that it was like a gentle caution, and then it turned into a commandment that is now, literally, you can't go to the temple if you don't keep the word of wisdom. You can't be baptized if you don't keep the word of wisdom. Like, it's not just a commandment that we don't really refer to anymore. It's an essential commandment to lead to ordinances, which ordinances in our church lead to salvation. So I wonder... If it's the only commandment to be so significant today that had that kind of foundation, I'm not aware of any other commandments that are so critical to progressing in the church today that were initially not a commandment and then voted upon. You know what I mean? Like it just I'm so curious on why it was turned into such a big thing. And obviously, I want to state here that it's not like we also interpret it today as like don't drink alcohol and don't smoke but it's also eat meat sparingly and it has guidance on like grains and like how many of us literally follow the word of wisdom I would say no very few very very few people in the church um it's turned into something like it's such a big thing but what it actually is people don't even follow but we still go to the temple even though we eat meat with every meal you know i don't know if it's yeah if that's the intention i don't know why that's the intention like why it's been interpreted so specifically today ah uh, yeah there's a lot of questions i have with 89 and it's interesting to learn the history of how it's been brought about uh what are your thoughts <laughs> i'm amused by your brigham young comment i literally like opened up my
0: notes and created a new note that says story idea if Brigham Young had never been a prophet. <laughs> oh my gosh, like, I'm please. I'm going to write a dystopian novel about that someday, I For swear. For
1: real, yeah. I mean, you, I guess the answer is when Joseph passed away and there was a branch off of the mm. church.
0: Yeah, the Community of Christ. Did you listen to James and Derek's episode with an interview of someone who converted to Community of Christ from our church? Uh, Brittany. Her name was Brittany. Okay, here it is. So, the Beyond the Block episode, It Mattereth Not, Doctrine and Covenants 27 through 29. They interviewed Brittany Mangelson, an elder in the Community of Christ, as they discussed passages that are foundational to her faith.
1: Yeah, be sure to check that out for more information. That's really cool that they interviewed someone actually from Community of Christ.
0: Yes. March 15th is the date it was released. Anyway, word of wisdom. Uh, so, I'm just going to say my controversial thing here. I think you could interpret the word of wisdom as eugenics. And that sounds a little bit harsh, but... Um, okay, so verse 3 in 89, it says that this principle is given with a promise adapted to the capacity of the weak and the weakest of all saints who are or can be called saints... Does this mean that it's already adapted and does not need any change? Or does that mean that we can adapt it according to our disability? But if so, then why are people who are neurodivergent or who have different physical disabilities and can't live the word of wisdom denied temple access. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. So so right then and there, I'm like, yeah, you're giving me a nice promise here, but I don't really see this in real life about adaptation. And then... uh, Verses 10 through 11. And again, verily, I say unto you that all wholesome herbs God hath ordained for the constitution, nature, and use of man, every herb in the season thereof, all these to be used with prudence and thanksgiving. There are uh, some herbs I can think of that um, the church does not want us to use with thanksgiving. (laughs) And these herbs actually can contribute to people being arrested and sitting in jail for a long time for simply having these herbs. Even after
1: laws change, yeah. Even
0: after laws change. Ugh. And and I, I know that the legal system is different from the church's system, right? But point right. is... How many times do we have people talk about the word of wisdom in church and then say, oh, yeah, and I smoked a joint last week and it was great. You know what I mean? Like, no, that doesn't happen at church. If you said that over the pulpit, the bishop would pull you aside and be like, we, we need to have a talk. It, yeah. it, would, it would not be taken that way. And yet in Doctrine and Covenants 89, it says all wholesome herbs. There's that qualifier, all, which is extremely inclusive, okay? And you can make a case for other things, but I will only stick to the one herb that is most commonly referred to as an herb. So there's that, but that is not technically allowed in the church, even though it is technically allowed in the text. And then verse 13 Talking about meat and that it's pleasing that they should not be used only in times of winter or cold or famine. I feel like that can be kind of classist, Mm. especially for people nowadays who've had their resources taken from them and how capitalism has destroyed our ability to, like, have healthy food. And I say healthy, I guess, is in quotes because that means different things to different people. But point is, like, we don't have a lot of options when we have very limited funds, right? Mm -hmm. I mean... Alternatively, you could say, well, I'm constantly in a state of famine because I am living as a poor person in this hyper-capitalist world. Mm -hmm. There's so much, like, back and forth in this. And then verse 16, all grain is good for the food of man, and as also the fruit of the vine, that which yieldeth fruit, whether in the ground or above the ground. All grain. Okay, well, what about people who are gluten intolerant, who will, like, have Hmm. severe problems if they eat gluten and certain grains. This scripture is not exactly applicable to every single person. So the point is that this section is not accommodating different needs. And I don't think it can accommodate all need. I'm pointing out all these things where, yes, there's this circumstance. Yes, there's this circumstance. And maybe people would argue with me and be like, well, you're just picking out like random things that are extenuating circumstances. But the general people, no, these are general people. I'm including them in my general populace. My point is that this section cannot be applied to all people, and yet we are applying it to all people. And verses 18 through 20, I absolutely hate. <laughs> and all saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, I shouldn't, should I use that voice? I shouldn't use that voice. Um,
1: <laughs> However you feel.
0: All saints who remember to keep and do these sayings, walking in obedience to the commandments, shall receive health in their navel, and marrow to their bones, and shall find wisdom and great treasures of knowledge, even hidden treasures, and shall run and not be weary, and shall walk and not faint. Hmm. Guess what I can't do, even if I keep the word of wisdom, walk and not faint, run and not be weary. Literally, I've tried that. (laughs) Like, I've literally tried that, kept the word of wisdom, and it has not healed my cataplexy magically. You know what I mean? It has not kept me any more alert and awake and not prone to fainting like I literally fainted doing ceilings in the temple a few years ago. You know what I mean? And I was keeping the word of wisdom at that point, according to them, right? I wasn't drinking alcohol or, or coffee or anything and eat probably eating meat spirit. I what was I eating back then? Probably spaghetti. Um, anyway, I I eat, I eat the same things a lot. Anyway, uh, it's an autism thing. Um, My point (laughs) is, I was keeping the word of wisdom, and I still fainted. And maybe someone's going to be like, oh, well, you're not supposed to take it literally. Why is it in the scriptures if we're not supposed to take it literally?
1: Right. I mean, the word of wisdom, like the do's and don'ts, we're supposed to take Uh literally. But then the promises we're not supposed to take Mm -hmm. literally. Yeah. You
0: can't pick and choose what's literal and what's metaphorical. I've said this before, but yeah, exactly. (sighs) Anyway, then and then and then, after like all of that that I was complaining about, It gets elevated even more in verse 21, which says, And I, the Lord, give unto them, meaning the people who keep the word of wisdom, a promise that the destroying angel shall pass by them as the children of Israel and not slay them. Amen. It's implying that those people who do not keep the word of wisdom, even people who have bodies and brains who cannot abide by the word of wisdom, will be slain by the destroying angel. How is this not eugenics?
1: Hmm.
0: Almost spiritual eugenics. If you're too neurodivergent or disabled to keep, or or how do I say this? Let me rephrase that. If the laws and commandments are set up in a way that are designed for you to fail, and then you will be spiritually doomed or slain if you fail them, then that's eugenics, right? Because then you have no disabled or neurodivergent people like that in heaven and we were taught that only people who make it to the celestial kingdom can have spirit children so the people who didn't make it who are quote slain or are doomed or whatever don't get spirit children and then you cut off their like eternal line of inheritance basically does that make sense so then we literally yeah. see how yeah. only the wow. neurotypical and able-bodied people are able to progress and have kids anyway
1: dang Reading verse three, I was surprised that it used the word weak when it's talking about how the principle is given or who the principle is given Mm -hmm. to. Does it mean like it's given to disabled people or people that are weak minded Mm -hmm. as maybe they would have been referred to at the time? Weak, it actually has a footnote next to it and it pulls the word humility, humble from the topical guide as a reference to this word, which I also find interesting given adapted to the capacity of the humble and the most humble of the saints mm. like what does that mean you know i guess ultimately i'm going back to what you said of like what is the word adapted here mean like it was changed or it will be changed mm-hmm. that joseph was able to receive this revelation but he didn't even follow it because it was not as a commandment but as a caution is that the adaptation that it wasn't supposed to be a commandment like i don't i don't understand that part either mm-hmm Lots of, lots of questions. And I have to teach this in Sunday school in like two weeks and I have no idea how I'm going to teach it.
0: <laughs> um. Just come in be like, it's eugenics. Or, or you know what? Or just like, I don't know. Cause part of me is like, okay, you're saying we can adapt it to weak things. Well, I'm a weak thing. Like, according to your estimation, I'm weak because I'm sinful. I'm weak because I can't walk. I'm weak because I'm emotional and I'm a woman. Therefore, I'm going to adapt it. And I'm going to drink my alcohol to help get rid of my anxiety in social situations. And I'm going to drink my coffee to help me stay awake when I drive. And uh, I'm going to eat my meat because I'm poor as frick. So there you go. Oh, and we didn't even talk about medical marijuana. And how so many people with different disabilities and chronic illnesses use it, and how the church's position on medical marijuana has just like barely slowly changed. Yeah. Actually, it'd be really cool if anybody listening is a member of the church and has like a medical marijuana prescription. We would love to have you on the podcast and do an interview with you and talk about like your experiences with that and like navigating the word of wisdom because I support you in that. But I'm also like really curious what pushback you've gotten.
1: Well, thank you for listening, friends.
0: Please follow us on Instagram, instagram.com slash holyhuman, W-H-O-L-Y-H-U-M-A-N. We're also on Facebook, Holy Human Podcast, and you can read or listen to full episodes at holyhumanpodcast.com or email us at holyhumanpodcast at gmail.com if you want to connect with us.
1: We also want to thank Mativ for intro and outro music. We accessed the song through freesound.org. Okay, my brain is done. We've been (laughs) talking for too long. Our tongues are like... Yeah, no kidding.